0: They're coming to get you, Barbara. Keep watching the sky. the new flesh.
1: Well, a, a boy's best friend is his mother.
0: Don't fall
1: asleep. I want to play a game. The blackest eyes, the dozen's eyes.
2: Children of the night. What music, baby?
3: Good evening, boys and ghouls, and welcome back to Saturday Night Spookorama, the podcast examining the history of horror films from the golden age to the modern day. I'm coming to you live in crystal clear spookasonic audio from our luxury studio at the bottom of an abandoned well on the outskirts of town. I'm your host, mm-hmm. Dan Kelly, and with me, as always, are my co-hosts, Sabrina Gall, that's me, Justice Hepburn, hey folks, and Alex Kump. I'm a ghost. And our stalwart producer, Mr. Andrew Barnes. Hey, everyone. Tonight, we'll be continuing our deep dive into the year 1931, the landmark classic Frankenstein and Paramount's take on Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So I was thinking we should get started with Frankenstein. What do you think about that? Let's do it. Let's do it. That is a starting point. Fantastic. So, uh, of course, Frankenstein, uh, directed by James Whale. It's based on uh, the novel. By Mary Shelley, uh, and that was published in uh, 1818. And the circumstances of its writing are are pretty famous. Um, Mary, That's a fun. Sh- yeah, Mary Shelley was on a continental vacation with uh, her lover and future husband uh, Percy Bysshe Shelley, uh, along with uh, Lord Byron, and uh, they had a competition to write uh, ghost stories. Uh, this was in 1814, and uh, mm-hmm. ultimately from that came... Oh, and also this guy named John Polidori was there. And he wrote uh, the, the first <laughs> vampire novel in the English language, which is called The Vampire. Uh, and Mary Shelley Classy. wrote... um Yeah. And Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein. And uh, Percy and Lord Byron wrote Jack Shedd. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Mary Shelley's sort of an interesting figure. She was sort of actually from literary aristocracy, uh, yeah. Her father was a philosopher uh, named William Godwin. Wasn't her
4: mom Mary Wilsoncraft?
3: Yes, her mo- yes, her mother was Mary Wilsoncraft. Uh, the book was a sensation upon its release. It was immediately popular and uh, and fairly acclaimed uh, at the time of its release. So of course, there's always people who who don't like it, but uh, you know, it was one of those stories that was <laughs> very famous. So of course, the plot of Frankenstein uh, concerns the titular medical student who discovers the secret of creating life. All right, so does anyone want to summarize the plot of Frankenstein?
1: Yeah, I'll take it. I'll do it. Mr. Henry Frankenstein and his lab assistant Fritz are stealing bodies in the hills of some generic Eastern European country. So yeah, he's he's making a man in a front to, to God and science in his remote uh, castle on a hill, and he succeeds. He succeeds with his... Uh, with his fiance and her, his teacher, and he makes a giant man as played by Boris Karloff. He makes a giant man played by Boris Karloff. Things go wrong from there. The monster gets out, causes havoc, kills a little girl, and eventually Frankenstein pays for his sins and is well. I mean, he's definitely killed. He's tossed onto the blade <laughs> of a windmill, and like he's very dead. But
3: there's a blog. <laughs>
1: Um, oh, no, so he's... badly
3: he turned into a dummy <laughs>
1: yeah. oh, he survives at the end he does actually survive at the end he d- but... I mean he survives but that ending man that ending's the worst <laughs> but does his heart survive <laughs> yeah because he's getting married everything's no. fine
3: I do I, I just want to point out that I, I found the original 1931 New York Times review of Frankenstein oh shit and even in that they say well Frankenstein survives at the end to please the audience, but he should have died. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyhow, thank you, Justice. Uh, no problem. You performed that ably.
1: But yeah, where do we want to start with Frankenstein?
3: Well, we could start with the movie's troubled production.
1: There we go. Let's go. <laughs> what a good idea, Thad. Uh, thank you so much.
3: So the Frankenstein had something of a troubled production. I- immediately following the success of Dracula, Carl Lindley Jr., who was a dummy, but not in this case, saw that he had struck gold and he wanted to, uh, to repeat the success. So he asked, um, a director named Robert Flory to adapt Frankenstein from, uh, again, from a stage, uh, production which is for some reason much less famous than the, the Dracula stage production upon which Dracula was based. Uh, yeah, so, the, the
4: Frankenstein uh, stage play was actually only running in London. And I don't think it was actually in America
3: oh, okay. at the time. Well, there you go. Uh, so Flory made major contributions to the script. Uh, and of course, the original plan was for Universal's new horror star, Bela Lugosi, to uh, perform a leading role. Now, Lugosi wanted to play Frankenstein, but Carl Emley Jr. insisted that he play the monster. Uh, now, apparently, they did some screen tests with Lugosi as the monster, and since they hadn't designed the makeup yet, they basically put Lugosi in a fright wig, and <laughs> oh, no. a- apparently the, the the scene that Robert Flory shot was so bad that Carl Emly Jr. actually, like, broke out laughing when he watched it. And on top of that, Legosi didn't want to play the monster anyway. There's reporting sort of stories about this. Some say that he didn't want to wear heavy makeup. Some say that he didn't like that the role was a mute, uh, but either way, he wasn't happy with the arrangement anyhow. So Carl Lemley Jr. kicked both Robert Flory and Bailey Legosi off the project and said, okay, you guys go adapt Murders in the Room Morgue, which Universal would release the next year in 1932. And since we're probably not going to talk about that movie, I will say that it is a sound remake of the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, but with an ape instead. Um, (laughs) So anyhow, Carl Lemley had met a British director named James Whale. For whatever reason, he just, he adored Whale. He said, all right, you're going to be, you're going to direct our Frankenstein. So James Whale came in heavily uh, revised the script, removed Robert Flory's credit, Um, and proceeded to recast the movie. So he was the one who chose Boris Karloff to play the monster. And at that time, Karloff was not a well-known actor. He'd sort of gotten by playing, you know, bad guy parts in silent movies. Um, And Whale had probably seen him in a movie called The Criminal Code. But basically, he thought that Boris Karloff had an interesting look, and that's why he chose him. Uh, but yeah the rest is is sort of history so uh i don 't know what what do we what do we think of uh what do we think of frankenstein i don 't know if we want to start in specific parts like I, I have this on the outline here that there's but go on
1: i um, <laughs> I unabashedly love about half of this movie, like <laughs> everything with the monster and mad scientist stuff is mm-hmm. great it 's amazing it 's some of my favorite stuff, but everything with like the dad and the fiance, like fretting oh. about a wedding. Oh <laughs> yeah. Terrible. I would say compared
3: to the comic relief in Dracula, the comic relief in this movie is a million times less grating.
4: Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Most of the world are. Yeah.
3: And James Whale well actually had sort of a reputation for having a light touch and using that kind of black humor. And I, I think, he, he, you know, the, the uh, Baron Frankenstein character is, I don't know. I find him sort of amusing, actually, uh, especially yeah, that he, outfit.
1: It's pretty great.
4: No, he definitely just feels very much like a dad through the entire movie, um, which is what works so brilliantly about it. Like you're like, oh, dad, but you're not like, okay, look at this actor trying to play some crazy dude. He's just like, oh, okay, thanks, dad. Yeah. yeah. And he uh, just
1: like disappears when the monst when the the torches and the pitchforks come out. Right? He's not around yeah. anymore.
3: Yeah, he's just not in the movie for a while. I would say my biggest impression of this movie even more so than Dracula is, it's a film that you feel like you've seen before, even if you've never <laughs> seen it.
2: Oh, yeah. I totally agree. Uh,
3: because so much of it is just incredibly iconic. The creation scene, the torches, you know, the, the torch bearing mob chasing down the monster. This is stuff that has been parodied, sent up and imitated so often that you just, you feel like you've seen this movie before, even if you've never seen it before. I would say oh, yeah.
0: that every mad scientist lab since Frankenstein has been the mad scientist lab since Frankenstein.
3: Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. God,
2: it was oh, so yeah, this... well set. The set design for that was just fantastic. Um and that oh, yeah. and that was really funny to watch uh Frankenstein get uh the sorry, the the monster uh get lift lifted up to the ceiling. And you see that he's uh sitting on a board of plywood. <laughs> <laughs> just the- this good old generic ply. Um, <laughs>
4: They actually used on the set uh, real Tesla coils and that was like all that electricity was real electricity, oh, shit. Which, was, awesome. which is if you know, anything about science is extremely dangerous. <laughs> oh yeah.
3: Yeah. I mean um, the production design of the film is fucking awesome.
1: Yeah. Uh, no, the that's... lab,
3: the, uh, the, 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 watchtower oh, lair, man. the Frankenstein house, uh, you know, Baron Frankenstein's house is just gorgeous.
4: I would say that the scene in which everything uh, you kind of realize exactly how great all the set design is, is uh, when they're searching that house for Frankenstein's uh, monster and they're just running from room to room to room to room. room, And everyone's like ornate and gorgeous and it's all like one continual shot. So this set must have been like a three story giant, uh, like almost a real house in a warehouse somewhere.
3: God, they just don't make them like they used to. (laughs) No.
4: (laughs) No, they find real houses and go there. (laughs)
3: Yeah, <laughs> that's lame. You should have to build a bunch of bullshit to make a movie. <laughs> <laughs> and even like the uh, like the hill, the hillside set with all the weird, like bizarre looking rocks. I-, I don't know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and like the night sky projected onto what's obviously a curtain in the background.
4: Oh, that's my favorite uh, by far. I,
3: it's sort of expressionistic, I guess, maybe because they couldn't afford realism, but. <laughs> It, it it does have this sort of haunted feel to the whole movie. I think comparing the direction and cinematography between Dracula and Frankenstein is very interesting because in the space of basically a year, Dracula was released in February and I think Frankenstein was in maybe November, the end of the year. Frankenstein is a much, much more modern feeling film.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's huge, huge stretches of Dracula that just feel kind of like stagey, just like you're watching a play, and there's nothing like that in Frankenstein. It feels cinematic, yeah, in the truest sense of the word, which I love.
2: I wonder if some of that comes from uh, the transition between uh, Dracula's stage play and uh, Frankenstein's stage play.
3: Yeah, I, I know um, almost nothing about that play, so I it's hard for me to say, but it, it's possible.
2: Yeah, because I yeah, you know, in, in Dracula you have a Lugosi who's um you know, going directly from the stage play to the movie. So I I would imagine there's at least some connection there.
3: Well, we know that it went through, you know, at least a couple rounds of revision. So that's probably the case. So uh, I think it it's sort of unambiguous that the two standout performances would be Colin Clive as Frankenstein and Karloff as the monster.
2: Oh, he was so beautiful.
3: <laughs> oh, yeah. I think it's interesting how... I know I was the one who just introduced the, the performances, <laughs> but I'm going to step away from that for a second. When the monster is introduced, he walks backwards through a door. He turns around slowly, and then there's, I think, three jump cuts closer and closer to his face. Yeah, pace, so yeah. Good. which That's is a good shit. it's a very interesting stylistic <laughs> choice, and they they really milk the the reveal. You know, there's, oh God, there's yeah, a couple long every scenes. other character
2: has seen it, seen him. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we're the la- we're not in the know until that scene.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
2: It, and it definitely um, sort of sets up this. Uh,
4: I'm sure we'll see the next kind of monster movies over the next like 20, 30 years of that sort of style of denying the audience the you know, the site that they really want and showing a sudden reveal of uh, of the monster.
3: Yeah, Absolutely. Do we want to talk about Karloff a little bit? Because I think that you know he really makes the movie. So oh, yeah. <laughs> obviously he has no lines. Uh, it's all about his physicality. The shoes he was wearing had a four-inch riser on them, which is why he towers over everyone. He actually was was of average height, but he does. I don't. Know, he's he's got this strange figure, and the the costume it, it accentuates that he's just really alien, and and he seems huge yeah his
4: hands are so uh, large
3: yeah. yeah
4: um I think I read somewhere that uh each of his boots weighed about thirteen pounds.
3: <laughs> yeah, those if are heavy sense. boots.
4: I would just like to talk about um you know the the character of Bar- uh Boris Karloff's character as a human being, which seemed to be he seemed to be super nice and really cool, specifically uh when they filmed the scene uh with uh the little girl at the lake. Um, everyone was really worried that like she was going to be scared and like they're like all right so we're gonna like bring in uh, you know, the actor wearing the makeup now so it's gonna be all right he cu- gets out of the car and they have to go like go to the location she goes can i drive with the monster um <laughs> oh. and apparently when they were uh filming the scene uh filming the scene on location they were worried that the uh the girl would get too frightened so uh they developed this uh, little signal off camera that uh, Boris Karloff would always move his pinky finger to remind her that no matter what was going on, uh, she was, his, her friend Boris was still there.
1: Aww.
3: That's so sweet. That is nice.
4: She also liked boiled eggs.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all right. Maybe you should tell that story for context, just so.
4: Yeah, um, so when they were... Uh, they had difficulty getting the, the right take for this shot where Frankenstein throws the girl in the lake. And they kind of kept asking her she kept doing it. And uh, James Will wanted one more take out of her. So he was like, I'll get you anything you want. You know, you just name it and we'll get it for you if you just do one more take. And she was like, okay, well, I want a dozen hard boiled eggs because I love them. (laughs) Um, He's like, okay, uh, because that seems like a reasonable request from a child. And, uh, you know, they do it they he throw into the lake, uh, he gets her two dozen boiled eggs, and that final take is the one they use in the film.
3: <laughs> That's really an amazing story. <laughs> uh, but no, I mean, I, I think uh, something that elevates this film is James Whale has sympathy for these outsider characters, um, Frankenstein and the monster. Uh, but mm-hmm. also, uh, Karloff just really plays the part with, this tremendous sort of humanity, I guess. Which is funny, I, I alluded before to that New York Times review and never in that contemporary review did they say, they did they refer to the monster as sympathetic in any way. Which is sort of interesting because I, I watch that movie now and I'm like, you know, this is about uh, an outcast whos who, is, who won't, can't be accepted by society. And and that's what the movie's about. But they're just like, oh, it's a fine spooky picture, you know. Truly, a, <laughs> a gruesome creature that is rightfully destroyed at the end. <laughs> Not that Uh-oh. they say that, but you know that that's that was the gist of their re- review, which is just sort of interesting to me. I don't know. Well, I
1: mean, I guess back then, criminal brain was just a more acceptable thing. Like, yeah, <laughs> they, they got one of them criminal brains. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's go, just weird. It. the The morality of it is weird to me because, yeah, that the little girl scene we we're just talking about. I don't know how someone could watch that scene and not be like, "Oh, this is a tragic story of someone who doesn't quite get how things work, and things get fucked up from there." That yeah, it just sort of boggles my mind. Uh, well, know.
4: interestingly, uh, for that scene, uh, they actually had more. They had another uh, couple seconds of that scene where uh frankenstein's monster realizes what he's done and like looks all upset and sad but they ended up cutting it from the film why um because of reasons <laughs>
2: <laughs> no it's rough because like i don't know watching it I, re- I you know you feel bad for um D- dr frankenstein but also for the monster like <laughs> i don't know it's really hard to not put yourself in either one of those sh- either one of their uh, Shoes, whether they're 13 pounds or a regular number of pounds
3: (laughs) well you know we know um that in the uh the Robert Flory script one of the things that Lugosi objected to was that the monster is not only a mute but basically evil a senseless killer and Dr. Frankenstein was also basically evil I, I think we can see in the, the final film the the James whale film, you know, with, with Frankenstein's sort of monologue about science, uh, which is really very lovely uh, that this is someone who's also a tragic figure though. It's interesting how the movie sort of walks back on its portrayal of uh, that character. I don't know. Cause in the beginning of that movie, he's insane. He's an <laughs> insane man hiding out in a tower.
4: Yeah, that's true. Uh,
3: saying, Oh, you call me mad I'll show you who's <laughs> mad and then at the end he's like haven't you ever you know, not in the end but halfway through it's like haven't you ever wanted to see beyond the sky it's like wh- <laughs> where did you come from <laughs> uh, and you kind of
2: assume he's always there because you get you have these like people of society who are um, speaking well about who he was before his experiments yeah um, so I think yeah you, you like see him in Maybe the worst portion of his life. <laughs> 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 Which is what it is, I guess.
3: <laughs> but I, I think Colin Clive uh, gives a quite a good performance. Um, oh, no, I, he's phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a big performance, but I, I believe it. I don't know. <laughs> when he says, for the love of God, now, what I, now I know what it feels like to be God. I'm like, oh, yeah. No, this guy's, this guy's <laughs> dense. Well, one of the things that, makes this movie somewhat feel like a sequel to Dracula is that it has some of the same cast. Uh, It has both Dwight Fry and Edward Van Sloan (laughs) returning for similar roles to those they played in Dracula. Uh,
0: That's probably (laughs) why I didn't recognize them. Less insane (laughs) this time.
3: Yeah. Edward Van Sloan. uh, I don't know. He's all He's fine in this Mm -hmm. as Dr. Waldman. Uh,
4: Yeah. Can we, can we, for the sake of uh, the listeners and uh, any host that doesn't know, um, What roles did they play in Dracula in this movie as well?
3: Uh, In Dracula, Dwight Frye played Renfield, and in Frankenstein, Dwight Frye played Fritz, the hunchback assistant. Uh,
4: Yeah, that makes sense.
3: And then Edward Van Sloan in Dracula played Van Helsing, and in Frankenstein played Dr. Mm. Waldman, Frankenstein's teacher. Uh, Those are
2: similar roles. That is actually really interesting.
3: (laughs) Yeah, they are. I do like Dwight Frye as Fritz in this movie, though. He's got a lot of really great physicality, there's a scene where he runs downstairs. Frankenstein sends him downstairs to basically tell whoever his visitors are to go away because the experiment's going on. Fritz runs downstairs. He tells Frankenstein's fiance, his friend and Dr. Waldman go away. And then he's running back up the stairs and he stops and he pulls his sock up,
1: um, <laughs> which I missed that.
3: Yeah, it, it happens. He, he, he very purposefully stops. The camera lingers on him as he pulls up his sock. And then he goes back up the stairs. It's not a flub. It's just this funny little moment.
2: Yeah, yeah, I definitely say that. Um, Fritz is definitely more of an asshole than than crazy. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah no,
3: he's a fucking yeah. He's yeah. an asshole.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Um, you know, he is awful to the to uh, the creature and not nice to anyone else. Though, to be fair, it's because he's instructed to do so, but. <laughs>
3: Well, it, it's sort of ambiguous, like, you know, it doesn't seem like Frankenstein told Fritz, uh, go torture my creation, please. <laughs> True. Um, it just seems like, I don't know, Fritz just does it Yeah. for he's... unclear, like, just because he's an asshole. Wow.
0: <laughs> just like purely out of sadism.
3: Um, and then, of course, the, the monster kills him. But it, As, it is
4: a very rightful murder, I believe. <laughs> <Yes>. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
3: uh, but yeah, you know, you have this scene where Frankenstein sort of is... I don't know, almost tenderly like teaching the monster. He says, "Sit down, sit down, and see." See, he understands. He understands. And then Fritz just comes in with a torch and starts waving <laughs> it in the monster's face.
2: <laughs> yeah, and I, I guess that's that's where my like um, sympathy for the monster starts. And like, I I, I did admittedly have that come, going into the movie, having having read the book. You know, Fritz just as soon as he's treated like a like a monster is when is when he starts acting like a monster.
1: And I think that also. It's sort of it's sort of weird with the the outsider thing you were mentioning earlier, Thad, like like Dr. Frankenstein and the monster are both outsiders who are who have uh, consequences because they don't quite fit into society. But then you got Fritz, who's also an outsider, but is just a crazy dick. And he's just (laughs) completely unacceptable by society or by anyone because he's a hunchback and also a sadist.
4: (laughs) And eats flies, I think.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's no. like there's, there's a limit to what kind of outsider-ness is acceptable. Mm-hmm.
4: The uh, fun thing, I think, is that uh, Universal still owns the rights to the Frankenstein makeup, uh, but their copyright expires in 10 years. So 10 years from now, that is a fucking free-for-all.
3: Oh my god. <laughs> oh, sure. We're all gonna be Frankenstein then. Hell <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, of course, it's, it's an iconic look. Uh, So one thing I always found odd is um, anytime or a lot of the times you see a Say a costume or something based on the classic universal Frankenstein's monster makeup uh, It's always green green skin, Mm. which I I don't know where that comes from, you know there's nothing that would suggest to me that he has green skin but um uh, part of it
4: is i guess the the actual makeup that they use is green because it films better in black and white okay um so that might be part of it um okay. and i think we might have an answer in a uh, few weeks when we watch other frankenstein adaptations if you do uh
3: well that may be that may be the case we shall see no telling what the future will hold on saturday nights <laughs> spookerama but any other
0: performances we want to talk about um so, um well I have a I have a question actually. Lay it on me. Does in in the book the character is named Victor Frankenstein. In oh, yeah. this he's named Henry Frankenstein, but there's another guy named
3: Victor. And in the book <laughs> okay. Victor Frankenstein has a friend named Henry. Yeah, oh. they just switched names. Okay.
4: They did it because they wanted it to be able to appeal to an American audience. Okay. Not not very really interesting. Stupid. Yeah. <laughs> but that's Hollywood. Bur, bur, bur.
3: Um <laughs> Another scene I wanted to point out is uh, the scene where the the father is carrying his drowned daughter through the festival scene. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's oh, it, incredibly powerful mm-hmm. uh, and very well filmed. The way that he walks through and the sort of the revelers gradually notice as he walks by um, and react is it all feels it, it, it's just so natural. And you completely understand where this this mob comes from following that. Because in so many of these sort of, um, where that scene, the, the torches and pitchforks, though there's no pitchforks in the movie, the torches and pitchforks mob would be parodied or imitated. It's just like, well, everyone hates a monster, so we're all going to go murder it. Um, but like, no, it actually completely makes sense in the world of the film. Uh, yeah,
4: absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's like
3: all I would agree, say about it's that.
2: also kind of amusing how everyone suddenly knows that it's that you know this this monster exists because the girl's body was carried. But I'm that's not <laughs> important.
0: Well, isn't Frankenstein's in the village at the time? Doesn't he? Yeah, but we never see
3: him cop to anything. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you know the, the the burgomaster is saying like you know you take this group to the woods, Frankenstein, you take this group to the mountains, and you never see him be like. Hey guys, I got to own up to something, you know, <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, I'm leading this, this part of a mob, but I, I think there's something you should know.
4: Listen, you don't just tell mobs true things.
2: <laughs> I, I, and at, the, at that point he had basically sworn off his creation. So I get it. It's not the right thing to do, but I get it.
3: There's a, a scene where the monster is menacing uh, Frankenstein's fiance, who's actually whose name I don't know, and I'm not even sure is mentioned. Elizabeth, Elizabeth. Uh, he he is uh, menacing Elizabeth right before the wedding. There's a couple things I wanted to talk about in that. One of which is the scene as she walks across the room and the monster is following her without her realizing that the monster's in the room is absolutely the the genesis of the slasher movie Killer Cam where, oh, yeah. uh, it, you know, it's, it's a very sort of modern horror thing. Mm. And, uh, and of course I want to give eternal uh, shout outs to the weird purr that the monster makes in that scene. <laughs> Beautiful. Which, which never ceases to fascinate me. Oh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and then, it, you know, Elizabeth shrieks, it cuts to the monster, he does the growl, Cut back to her, and she shrieks again. It's just one of these strange little things in the movie. I, I don't know.
1: We should talk at least briefly about the uh, the intro scene with. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. With the guy in, t- in the tuxedo, Edward. Because, yeah, Edward. Sloan, oh, I, cause yeah. I want I want every movie to start like that. Just telling you, this is going to be some weird stuff, guys. <laughs> think about the like David Lynch
4: movie started like that. <laughs> it's going to be spooky.
3: <laughs> Mr. David Lynch wanted us to offer a warning to our audience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, and, and I think that there's the progression from Dracula to Frankenstein is interesting to me. And, and how it informs horror films and the development of horror films. I think that the introductory scene is sort of an element of lingering theatricality to the movie, because literally you have Edward Van Sloan in a tuxedo in front of a curtain, like he's standing on a stage giving Mm -hmm. this. Uh, So in terms of setting, it's very much that that way. But my interpretation of it is that the idea of a horror film was new and Dracula as we talked about last week, was was sort of a new experiment in creating a movie that was primarily meant to frighten the audience. And that was, you know, somewhat novel. It, it had been done before, but uh, people were not used to that, I don't think. And so you have this follow-up movie to Dracula and Universal's saying, we're going to do it again. Uh, but there's still that element of, let's send out an actor to warn people that this movie is... Is meant to scare you, and I, I just think it's interesting that that they chose to do that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, as um, we mentioned last week, uh, uh, Dracula, Dr- Dracula, excuse me, Dracula ended in that same sort of warning. Don't worry, this isn't real. <laughs> it's spooky, but not real.
4: Um, I would say I think this is the really only time period in which uh, film studios were worried that horror movies would scare people.
3: <laughs> <laughs> also, in that intro, uh, in the opening credits, um, the background on the opening credits is claws and eyes emerging over a ledge, and the the eyes are shooting lights. And that has just nothing to do with the movie. Uh, I, I, you know, but still it, I, I think about it. When I think about Frankenstein, I'm like, oh yeah, the, the weird eye guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then uh in in a move that was unusual for the time there are end credits which are of course different than the beginning credits. Oh, cuz yeah, the monster is a question
4: mark. Yeah.
3: Yeah, the the uh Karloff is not credited in the opening credits. It says whatever the monster and then a question mark. But and then at the end, very unusual for the time, they have closing credits with at the top it says a good cast is worth repeating. Which uh, I think is kind of cute actually But another holdover from Dracula Is that like Dracula This uh, Frankenstein Has no non-diegetic music Uh, It has no score Um, But it does have Music over the closing credits Which Dracula didn't Well Dracula didn't have closing credits But it it has a a closing uh, musical number um, Which is sort of an Interesting progression
4: The showstopper (laughs) <laughs>
3: also a big difference between the two is that while dracula had so much of that silence which in some ways works to the film's favor uh there is a ton of background noise in this movie including those iconic lightning sounds you know the crackle of the electricity the the shouts of the mob uh, it has and then you know other stuff too obviously but uh <laughs> it actually is full of of sound even if there's no music you don't even notice that there's no music
4: yeah i mean i think that uh because of the technical limitations of the time which is the reason that this happened uh, a lot you find directors who are a lot more willing to engage with silence in very interesting ways i think Mm -hmm. uh one of the things that's lacking from uh, most films these days and i think only in the past like maybe 10 years has it really been uh have having its renaissance but you get uh, people who know how to use silence don't take it for granted that like oh like we can take a moment and just like watch two things happening and not have to worry about like, how are we going to manipulate the emotions?
3: Another sort of interesting thing about this movie is that part of it, I guess, is that uh, it's short. It's 70 some minutes, but, uh, okay. but it's, it starts, the movie starts in the graveyard and it just jumps right in. Frankenstein and Fritz are digging up a grave. You do not see Frankenstein developing his theories. You don't meet him before his his descent into this, it just sort of begins, um, which is like Frankenstein in that way. You know, there's no, we don't get to know Frankenstein before he starts sucking blood. You know, Dracula. We don't get to know uh, Dracula. <laughs> God damn it! Uh, yeah, which is just, <laughs> just like Frankenstein.
2: Yeah, no, I re- but I really liked that storytelling. Um, I thought it was it was nice to have just start the movie and start the, the plot that the story they wanted to tell and not have a whole lot of um, like have some trust that the viewer can pick up on what's going on.
3: Well, the final sequence with the mob <laughs> chasing the monster uh, up to the windmill is pretty exciting. It's, it's, it's filmed in a, in a, a fast paced, exciting way. And probably with the sequence of the mob chasing the monster up to the hill, then Frankenstein fighting the monster uh for a scene then they go up to the windmill they burn down the windmill Frankenstein gets thrown off the monster dies in the flames it must have been just uh this it must have been nuts in 1931 it must have been <laughs> oh God. frankenstein and the monster looking at each other through the turning uh gears of the windmill which i want to stress again is such a great set it's it's a well-made well-made scene
2: I mean, really, I I, I would uh, take that further and say that the movie was just really well made. I I liked it a lot.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Uh, it's gorgeous. And especially that windmill scene. I think like that that final shot of the windmill after it after it cuts back and it's that wide shot of the hill and the mm-hmm. windmills on fire and you can see all the little fla- all the little torches on the ground might. Be my favorite shot in like <laughs> cinematic history. It's oh, wow. so it's so good. I love it so much. One interesting
3: thing, and it, this might be an error in the script or something, but when Frankenstein is conducting his experiments, he is conducting them in an abandoned watchtower. Then later on, he and the monster end up in a windmill. But that's two different places. He wasn't running back home. No, 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 no. Uh, but when uh, Baron Frankenstein is talking to Elizabeth and Victor, he says, "Yeah, this is he's run off to some windmill to conduct yeah, I experiments." Mm. Uh so I don't know. maybe that's an error in the script, uh, or maybe it's just, I don't know who who gives a shit about the difference between a watchtower and a windmill.
4: Oh, yeah. <laughs> you could presumably watch things from a windmill." <laughs> <laughs>
3: That's true. As long as that's a window, I don't know.
4: Yeah, how ignorant of you is that? There was a little veranda.
3: I think like, uh, like the book, the movie's really not sure. It doesn't give a definitive answer about who's to blame for the destruction. Uh, it talks a lot about um, the monster basically being an affront to God. Uh, In fact, in the opening uh, scene where Edward Van Sloan introduces the movie, he says basically something to that effect. He says, um, uh, without reckoning upon God. And then there's all this stuff about how it's blasphemous. uh, And yet, you know, the movie doesn't really take a stand beyond that about uh, sort of what the root of the evil is. And uh, although it does have the weird phrenology stuff about the criminal brain, like, it just, James Whale doesn't seem to give that much stock to that, yeah. even though it's in the script and filmed in the movie. Yeah.
2: Any well, guys, uh, additional thoughts on uh, on Frankenstein before we uh, move on to movie two?
4: I try to avoid thinking.
2: Okay, then movie two. <laughs> well,
3: I, I wanted to ask you guys, uh, I think I know the answer, but I'm going to try and make a habit of just asking this after every movie. Would you recommend Frankenstein?
1: Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely, 100%. Yeah, no, well, I, I would that, too.
0: <laughs> yep.
2: uh, Are you of two minds, Dad?
0: <laughs> would you like to abstain from answering? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
4: I think that with any of these kind of uh, old school movies, you're definitely suggesting it to a specific type of friend. I don't think um, even today I would say like, oh... You know, if you're not super into like film or film history, I don't think it's like a really required watch. Um, but I think if you, you know, if you're well versed, I think it's definitely something that you should check out.
2: Yes. Yeah. That. <laughs> Second. <laughs> Third. I, I,
3: I don't know. Maybe um, all my friends are nerds, which is true. But uh, I, I would just I would recommend this movie without reservations. Honestly, it's 70 minutes long. You know, what do you have to lose? Go back to the source watch where all this stuff comes from (laughs) and uh yeah i don't know so yes i would wholeheartedly recommend frankenstein Would we like to move on to our second film, uh, Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde? Can we? Let's go.
4: I just want to bring this up. Um, no one for the rest of this podcast is going to say Jekyll because <laughs> that's dumb. I know that's the proper way to say it. I know that's you know what you're supposed to say, but it's stupid.
2: But it was never used since, so Jekyll is not in my vernacular. All right. So Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde.
3: Let's uh yes so dr jekyll and mr hyde uh uh, directed by ruben mamoulian
2: all right who wants to talk about the plot what was this movie about uh
3: well the plot of the movie uh concerns a doctor uh called in the movie dr jekyll but i agreed not to say that uh at least tacitly (laughs) so i'll call him dr jekyll uh who believes strongly that uh the human mind can be separated uh, from its base impulses in order to improve society and, uh, and advance humankind. He is set to marry his fiance, but her father insists that uh, they wait eight months. But the problem is that he's horny. Uh, <laughs> and so he uh, uses his invention of a potion to separate uh, the the mind's sort of ego and id. Uh, though I'll talk about that in a minute because I this movie has no consistency. Um, <laughs> and basically, it's almost
4: like it's a bad film.
3: <laughs> um, it uh, so he uses his invention and transforms into a sinister figure. Uh, called Mr. Hyde who goes around town uh, causing a ruckus and um, then proceeds to uh, terrorize uh, a young woman for like six weeks apparently but uh, eventually he gets guilty about this but then by that point uh, he can't stop turning into Mr. Hyde there's a climactic denouement and he gets shot the end
2: yeah, Then, yeah, he uh, finds his fiance is um due to come back from her long trip then uh it's like i'm i'm through with being mr hyde and then as you say cannot no longer become uh not become mr hyde
1: Mm -hmm. uh so yeah i don't know what do we have to say about this movie i mean do we want to start by talking about just how horny dr jekyll is (laughs) for the entire goddamn movie
2: do we want to talk about how racist the pro- uh, <laughs> the uh, projection of Mr. Hyde is?
1: Let's do that too.
2: <laughs> it's
1: it's really uh, bad.
2: <laughs>
3: yeah, I guess uh, before even before we get into that, I will say that watching this movie in comparison to something like Frankenstein or Dracula, uh, this th- I found this movie troubling. Can you be more specific? Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I I thought it was uh, sort of unsparing. This movie's I- is. Compared to the other films we've watched, this is shows some pretty extreme brutality, even if it's implied, uh, more so than more so than Dracula and Frankenstein. Um, and like, it's not like I went to bed and had nightmares, but I I did. <laughs> I was like, huh, this this movie is. Um, I found it troubling. I don't know.
4: Yeah, I think it has. Uh, I was what I was mostly surprised by was it has a uh, starter startlingly accurate representation of like a domestic abusive relationship.
3: Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you know,
4: when you think of, uh, you know, someone who hasn't read the book, uh, but kind of knows the idea, think about uh, Mr. Hyde running around just kind of being a general dick, you know, like just kind of fucking shit up. But when you like, there's these long extended scenes of uh, him and her in her apartment that he bought for her and he's doing the whole like milady thing and it's uh, really... It, that, that's more unsettling than any of like the the things they try to pass off as unsettling.
0: I think that I think that is supposed to be pretty unsettling, though.
4: I mean, it is, yeah. But um, I don't know. Like, I think that the movie makes this big deal out of like, oh, like we all have a bad side, and that's sketchy. But oh. like, really, it's sort of like, oh, like this is this. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. Uh,
3: I, yeah, I mean, um, I guess the the movie is attempting to play with. Psychoanalysis and and Freudian ideas about ego and id, which were big at the time. Um, mm-hmm. They they had entered the pop culture, uh, and so Doctor Jekyll says, you know, that what he's trying to do is separate the animal impulses from from the human mind. And so I guess it's you know you, you have his transformation into this uh, sort of simian creature, uh, and and he's meant to be, or at least my assumption is that they meant for him to be a, the unrestricted id, you know, so uh, a, a creature driven only by the pursuit of present pleasure. Um, but that's not what Mr. Hyde is. No,
0: he's just he goes, evil.
3: Yeah, he's just evil. <laughs> you know, he, he goes on an extended campaign of terrorizing someone for sadistic purposes. You know, this is not somebody who flits from one thing to another and and he doesn't he's not When he's violent, it's not just that he's sort of lashing out in childish rage. He's evil. He's torturing someone. (laughs) I I think that the the whole sort of Freudian angle that they go about it is just not supported by by the text, as they
0: say. Totally incoherent. Totally incoherent. (laughs)
2: Um, And then to clarify on um, the form of uh, Mr. Hyde, he definitely... um, there's a very distinct scene where he, uh, he, you see uh, uh, Doctor Jekyll's hands become distinctly darker, and uh, you see his um his face, a be look is trying to portray someone of um African descent, <laughs> and it's just awful. <laughs> it's it's not meant to be a pleasant portrayal of some of a uh, of of some of this, you know, of this doctor, it's a completely different person.
1: I don't know. with the completely different person thing, I was kind of unclear how much the movie was playing off. Like, Oh, Jekyll's a uh, Jekyll was a bad dude before he was just using Hyde as an excuse. Cause he was making out with the blonde lady whose name I'm forgetting right now. Um,
3: Ivy. Ivy.
1: yeah, Ivy. Oh, yeah. He was making out with the blonde lady <laughs> and going on. <laughs> Whole rants about like well what's the line? You this, is a man who's dying of thirst in the can a man who's dying of thirst in the desert forget water or whatever? Yeah, like he's <laughs> he's got all this he had all that those impulses in him mm-hmm. when he mm-hmm. was Jekyll. He just starts to drink a potion, and becomes a much much worse dude.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, it's it, it's interesting because um I haven't read the book but I um. Am familiar enough with its uh, substance that um, so in the book, you're, you, you as um, a Doctor uh, Doctor Jekyll um, creates this potion. His his uh, Doctor Jekyll becomes even more this like kind human being, and uh, Mister Hyde is is that is that distinct opposite that uh, continues to develop as you know one side prevails. And you really don't get that in in the in this movie which is too bad i feel like that would have um made the case for um hide being this terrible person <laughs> i made that a lot stronger
1: yeah maybe well, if I they think... had shuffled around the scenes where he uh what you would call it, helps the little girl with the crutches and operates on the old lady
0: <laughs> after he <laughs> takes the potion
2: yeah that would yeah. have been really great
0: see i got um I don't know, maybe this is just a fever dream of mine. Um, but I, I kind of took it as, like, almost like Dr. Jekyll was already, like, the, the total super ego.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, like, of course, if you split him from his base impulses, well, his, uh, you know, the good part's already dominating, so the potion's only going to make the bad part dominate. Maybe that's just imagined on my part, but it does, um, I don't know, I'm just trying to find a way to explain the fact that despite his magic potion being supposed to like separate the two into two distinct entities. All that does mm-hmm. is make him evil.
2: I think that's, I, I like that reading of the character more. I just, I wish I had gotten that well viewing.
0: <laughs> yeah. like I, I don't know how much, uh, you know, textual support there is for that.
2: No, that's, that's fine. <laughs> um, one thing
4: that I think is very interesting about Mr. Hyde's evil is, um, Like, the first time we see him, he's kind of being polite. Uh, He's not really... He's talking to the landlady, Ivy's landlady, and he, like, at the end is a little bit, like, But, like, (laughs) overall is, like, moderately pleasant.
3: He keeps Um, it together. Hmm.
4: Like, maybe he's a little loud. Like, in proper British culture, he should probably be talking a little quieter. (laughs) Um, But uh, then like, throughout the whole thing, like, he's playing out this sort of British aristocracy ideal, I guess. And, like, he weirdly is using Ivy to, like, fulfill this fantasy. Like, he's not just going in there to, like, you know, abuse her, which she does, uh, strongly. He, like, makes her say the things he wants to hear. Um, He plays those power games with her, but, like, it feels like towards the end of him obtaining some sort of idealistic dream.
3: Yeah, I think there's a lot you can say about um, uh, Victorian morality in the story. Obviously mm, by 1931, we're way out of the Victorian period, but uh, sort of the, the the morals of Victorian England loom really large all throughout the 20th century. Um, and it would have been even more immediate then. Uh, so you have this character who um, is in this like weird courtly romance um, where he's waiting eight months to marry his fiance. And they're abiding by all these, these sort of extremely strict etiquettes. Uh, But then, you know, his Butler says to him, well, why don't you go sample the pleasures of, you know, it's like, (laughs) and then, and, and, you know, Jekyll of course says, I can't do that. I'm a gentleman, but um, like that is the, that sort of public versus private morality and the hypocrisy of it. Uh, I think is expressed um, in the film. Just to talk a little bit about some sort of film trivia or background, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde has had already been adapted to film many times uh, when this movie came out, uh, often in the silent era as shorts. I think people just wanted to show off that um, they could do like a series of fades. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's like, whoa, special effects. Uh, Isn't but- that
2: what we watched... For this podcast, though? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, they're they're doing
3: something else there, too. (laughs) No. (laughs) um, But uh, the most famous version before this was from 1920, and John Barrymore played Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. But also in 1920, uh, F.W. Murnau made an unauthorized German uh, adaptation called "The Head of Janus," which I guess he just loved making unauthorized adaptations because it got him in some <laughs> hot water with Nosferatu. Uh, but sort of the 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 fun trivia fact is that um, in "The Head of Janus," Bailey Lugosi had a minor role. Ooh. Oh, fuck. yeah! God damn! Um, he keeps popping up. Yeah, yeah. And then in 1941, um, this movie was made by Paramount. But in 1941, I believe MGM. Made their own version starring Spencer Tracy, um, and they actually uh, MGM bought up all the copies they could of this 1931 film mm. to hide Dang. them, uh, so that no one would be able to see a different adaptation. Uh, fuck. Which is sort of interesting. Dang. I don't know.
4: And also, um, according to reports, uh, that version that they made was significantly worse than this one.
3: I've I've never seen the 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 Spencer Tracy one. I don't know, my mom says it sucks, so <laughs> I trust her to a certain extent, her opinion on film.
4: Enough. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> hey, hey,
3: in terms of direction and cinematography, this is uh, a very stylized film. Um, it's also worth noting that uh, the budget of this movie was twice that of Frankenstein. Oof, I believe it. A whole uh, half yeah.
0: a million dollars.
3: Yeah. Uh, and, and Paramount was a much bigger studio and they could throw that kind of money around. Mind you, by 33, they were bankrupt, but um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was hard times, I guess. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, there's a lot of weird stylistic touches in this, um, like the subjective POV shots, uh, the, all the stuff they do with mirrors. Um, the visual- that was really cool. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I love a good mirror shot. Uh, visual symbolism with the boiling pot. But, uh, and then those weird diagonal wipes that stop I love halfway those. through. Never seen oh, those are great. Um, so, I mean, it's like a very stylized film. And uh, Ruben Mamoulian, I believe, I don't know much about his work, but I believe his reputation is, is of someone who favored style over substance. Whether or not that's fair, I mean, maybe it is way outside the scope of what I can judge, but definitely this is a film with a lot of uh, extremely strong stylistic elements.
4: Oh, yeah. I, since we're talking about it, I want to talk about um, my favorite shot, which is the first time that uh, Jekyll transforms into Hyde, uh, and it's just the shot of him and he's like making faces, but then like the makeup starts appearing on his face.
3: Yeah, yeah. Uh,
4: and for the longest time, uh, they didn't tell anybody how they did it. Uh, and no one really knew. And then uh, one day, the, uh, the makeup guy did an interview for a book, and he told the secret. And what they did was um, the all the makeup was uh, different contrasting colors, and they used color filters over the lens, uh, and they would uh, add them or remove them to hide certain makeup elements. Because mm-hmm. uh, because it was a black and white film, you know, you wouldn't see the color change, but you yeah. would see makeup just to kind of appear on a face.
3: Hmm. It's definitely cool if you're watching like, oh, wow, yeah, how'd they do that? It's sort of brilliant. I mean, uh...
1: all the transformation sequences are really, really well done. Like, like the makeup thing, you go, you watch that. And like today, that would be done with CGI, some mm-hmm. bullshit. Yeah. Some dude would spend 20 minutes adding some computer garbage to it. But I think like, it yeah, that, take some yeah, that probably takes more
3: than that. Sorry to it's, sorry to enter computer artists in, uh, in the yeah. in the listening audience.
0: What um, we mean is thirty thousand people would spend twelve hours each adding that transform. God, okay, it's it's,
2: it's too Fine. bad these uh these wonderful shots were wasted on such a bad movie. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I would also like to
4: just uh, talk for a second about how um, especially the streets of London. Uh, in the, the background painting are very reminiscent of, of the cabinet of Dr. Caligari.
3: Yes, mm. the set design yeah. is gorgeous. The set design is gorgeous. But uh, in another transformation scene where he's in the park uh, and you watch him transform, rather than merely using crossfades, which they do in other parts of the movie, there's actually a whip pan. <laughs> they nice. whip pan up from, from his hands to his face uh, and, and it conceals a cut. Uh, which is, um, I don't know. I, I, I didn't know they did that in 1931. <laughs> uh, do we want to talk about performances? I love Miriam Hopkins in this movie. I think she's spectacular.
4: Oh, she is by far. She
2: carries the film in my opinion. No I would agree.
1: Yeah.
3: Really, uh, really spectacular performance.
2: Um, yeah, I'd really say that, uh, both female leads were great. <laughs> or like- yes. Yeah definitely worth men- worth mentioning
3: yeah Frederick March uh, won an Oscar for he won best actor in 31 he, he um, earned it
4: for talking through those prosthetic teeth
3: yeah. <laughs> I read somewhere that um, the 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 prosthesis or uh, you know the fake teeth um, actually they were beyond they weren't merely uncomfortable to wear they actually um, uh, were dangerous uh, okay. and they they threatened to cause permanent damage. To him and he was hospitalized <laughs> after after the after they filmed uh, I don't know Jesus if that's true Lord. or not but there's but, probably uh, like lead in those teeth <laughs> yeah I'm just uh, sucking on
2: lead <laughs> yeah no I just want to know what do you, did you guys think made the movie bad see we can I think we can all generally agree that this was not an enjoyable watch for its plot
1: I liked when Mr. Hyde was, like, jumping around on shit. That was great. (laughs) Yeah, I know. That's a lot of fun. That's a lot of fun. Yeah, because, like, he shows no athleticism before that. (laughs) Then all of a sudden, he's going crazy. It's
3: great. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I have mixed feelings about the movie. Um, Maybe somebody else should go first.
1: Um, I I would say
4: that I think it is uh, poorly paced. Um, That's my sort of biggest complaint with it. It's um, about a third of the way into the movie that, like, he transforms which is the inciting incident uh for the most part Mm -hmm. so you kind of just have 30 minutes of just exposition and like very dull dreary exposition at that
1: yeah Yeah. how many how many scenes do we have of him and miriam going oh i want to get married right now i want to get married right now we can't we can't we can't there's like five scenes like that and they go on forever
2: they go on, they like talk for about 10 minutes of this, this first third of the movie about it. And it's just disgusting. <laughs> but that being uh, yeah. said, hour and a half movie, first 30 minutes of exposition just uh, doesn't sit well.
0: <laughs> and it seems like the last um, 20 or 30 or 10 to 20 minutes is completely rushed. <laughs> like the entire um, end of the movie, like the, the resolution of the film, <laughs> it feels like it all just happens like that. Yeah, and that's something <laughs> you know.
3: I, I have to uh, compliment Frankenstein on is that um, unlike Dracula, which is has like a weird anticlimax, and this movie where <laughs> the resolution is really rushed, uh, Frankenstein's perfect. Face perfectly. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I would have loved to see um, you know this the scene where um, Mr. Hyde is you know running through town trying to turn back into to to Jekyll um, to fool the police. I'd love to see that go on longer um or like have more of that through the film and like uh, you know so that they're they're um you know in the in the books there's it's a lot bigger this like you never see them in the same room and there's people who know both of them and you know kind of uh, definitely it sounds like a really interesting relationship in that sense You, you know you have the the butler who's like who you know he's mr hyde is mentioned to him once but like
1: yeah i was confused about the butler whether the butler knew or not, he was a very weird character.
3: Yeah, he's just kind of like um, a guy for Doctor Jekyll to talk to. Like, we got to have another guy in this scene, even though he's already
0: got his doctor friend.
2: I, I think it talks more about um, his wealth than anything else. Um, that the, giving him a butler uh, allows the viewer to immediately pick up on uh, pick up upon you know this this doctor is really wealthy and has and got that way by being this great doctor he is and then splits.
3: Anybody got any closing comments?
2: I just wish the cinematography would have uh, saved the rest of the movie.
4: (laughs) But uh, Sabrina and I were talking about how we wish that a lot of the cool cinematography for the film was more in service of the story Mm. rather than just sort of being cool. Right. Especially like a lot of like the fades and wipes and stuff like that. They they were cool.
2: Um or even the POV shots.
4: Yeah. I was expecting that to be some sort of cool, you know, difference between being, you know, a monster and a human, but like really they were just cool POV shots.
2: You know, or yeah, or like that would have been a really cool reveal for like watching uh Jekyll like realize who he is. Like, th- that would have been so great. <laughs> I-, I took
3: I took the, the POV shots to be and again you um whether or not you believe the movie succeeds in this is another question. but uh, if I were to try and get in the head of Memolian, I would say um, the POV shots are meant to implicate the audience and say that mm-hmm. uh, you know if this is a movie that's supposed to be about the dark underbelly of people in general, you know, as an allegory, that would be my interpretation of that. Whether or not you think that the film actually succeeds in doing that is a different question, but I think that that was the intent in my opinion.
2: Huh. I no, I definitely like that interpretation. I wish I had gotten that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't, or maybe yeah, maybe putting the POV shot not as your first shot, but like after the after he gives his presentation on like what what a person is. Mm. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm no, I'm no film buff, but I think that could have been in a better place.
3: It is, it is sort of odd. It's an odd way to start the movie, and it goes on for a while, and then it's just like, ah, oh, we're not doing this anymore.
4: Yeah uh yeah they bring it back like once for a, for a hot second but like realistically it's not useful
0: and it could have been like a, a really neat technique to like okay you're seeing through his eyes you're seeing through his eyes but you don't know which one of them he is hmm. yeah no. yeah and then uh nope you just get to watch him play the piano um <laughs> i i want speaking of
3: um that the uh, organ the, excuse you yes the organ i wasn't gonna <laughs> correct you but i'm glad somebody did Uh um, <laughs> Uh, the, the opening uh, credits feature uh, the Toccata and Fugue uh, by Bach, which uh, may be the first use of that uh, piece of music in the context of a horror film. In fact, I'm, I'm yeah. a- 100% certain that it is. <laughs> um, and, and now we, <laughs> we uh, you know, that's like the stock scary music now. Yeah. Uh, m- maybe before this film, it already had the connotations of being scary, but I don't know. I believe it uh-huh. um, oh another little stylistic thing I wanted to mention where in the beginning, you see uh, Jekyll and uh, Muriel, uh, his fiance they're out in the garden uh, at the party, and there's these long lingering close ups, super close-ups on their eyes uh before they kiss uh, and then later on i, I noted that um, the shot was cruelly replicated when it does the same thing uh with uh, with mm-hmm. um, Mr. Hyde. Ivy?
0: As, Ivy, yeah, like,
3: yeah. Uh, so I thought that that was something uh, also <laughs> when when in the shot when um, Mr. Hyde murders Ivy uh, you see him strangling her and then they uh, they go sort of th- you lose sight of them and, but y- you have this long still shot of uh, the, the statue of two angels in an embrace um, which I also thought was pretty uh, bleakly <laughs> beautiful kind of stylistic choice i don't know I, I like that quite a bit but um any other thoughts cool. on on uh dr jekyll and mr hyde
1: okay yeah that's what i was gonna say it's it's interesting watching this movie as a as a pre-code movie yeah to understand yeah. like how you to talk the code... a little bit
4: about what the do you want to talk a little bit about what the code was just for uh the, the context people who don't know oh,
1: yeah yeah sure so uh so yeah so the, in the early 30s a uh, bunch of folks came down uh, well, before the, in the, in the early thirties movies were pretty crazy and there was a lot of sex and violence and whatnot, and it was pretty popular, but a bunch of people who opposed those sorts of things came together and was like, no, no, we're going to have a specific code and it's got to reinforce what exactly could be in every movie. And I assume we'll go into that once we get to postcode movies, but watching this movie, you really see why they were freaking out. Cause like this movie, this movie pretty- hardcore. It gets pretty dark and kids could just like wander in. They did not have, there was no MPAA. There was no PG 13 or R ratings. So it was just like, yeah, this is what's playing. Yeah. And I understand why people were like, no, we're shutting and, this down.
3: And another thing is that um, pre code, uh, different places would have different levels of censorship. And so oh, right. yes, you, yes, yes. you would have a, a movie like this, you know, in order for it to metaphorically and literally play in Kansas you had to cut out half the film.
4: <laughs> they actually re-released this film uh, in the late uh, '30s, and that was after the code was instated. They had to cut out eight minutes of the film.
3: And and so the I think the the code was an attempt by Hollywood to self-regulate so that they wouldn't have to deal with this. You know, they didn't want yeah. the government to pass censorship censorship uh, against Hollywood. So they said, okay, we are going to create a set of standards that. All movies are going to abide by, and so no matter what, every movie is going to play in Kansas, so to speak. Yeah, we, we do need to maybe get into the habit of defining our terms. Like, I've very willy-nilly used the term non-diegetic music, and I'm very sure most people don't know what that means.
0: Yeah. I, I don't know what that means. Last episode.
3: Yeah, uh, well, uh, <laughs> diegetic music is uh, music created in the universe of the the fiction, music that the characters can hear. Non-diegetic music is the opposite. Music that the characters can't hear basically. Cool. Uh, So for folks who have been waiting for an explanation of non-diegetic music since they were enraptured listening to episode one, uh, now you have your answer and the long wait is over. All right. Would you recommend uh, 1931's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde?
2: Um, if there was any other movie suggested, probably not. But if, but if someone like wanted to see some amusing wipes, some amusing like, <laughs> you know, early uh, cinematography, this would be like cool, I guess.
4: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, my official uh, decision on this is: look it up on YouTube, watch some clips, and move on with your life. Mm.
1: Yeah. And I mean, there's there's so many adaptations of Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. You could you could do better. If you really need that Jekyll and Hyde fix.
0: (laughs) Barnes, you want to weigh in? Uh, Yeah, I'm with Alex. uh, Research purposes only. Hmm.
3: I guess I will be not a dissenting voice exactly, but I I would recommend it more. Somewhere Uh, in the middle? (laughs) uh, Well, I'd recommend it more than you guys, maybe. Um, I think for the right person, uh, if you're somebody interested in classic horror, I would say, yeah, watch this movie. Well, um... Guys, I, I think it's just about time for us to wrap up another episode. I had a blast tonight. I hope you guys had a good time, too. Uh, I listeners... had a
4: ghoul of a time.
3: <laughs> Great. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't...
1: <laughs> I don't have a pun, so, you know. <laughs> it was good. Just, good. just picked a thing and went with it, man.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Well, listeners out there in podcast land, thanks again for tuning in. Hope you guys are enjoying the show so far. Because uh, we're all having a blast making it, so uh, unless we have any final comments, I think we can sign off for now. What do you say, guys? Sounds, Sounds good. good. Oh, should we should we tease our viewers with what we're doing next week?
2: Hmm.
3: Oh yeah, yeah, we should definitely. Yeah, what are we I watching next cheese. week? We're gonna move on to 1932. We're gonna finally leave our our uh, our first year.
4: I'm doing very excited about the movies we're watching. So uh, we're gonna be watching uh, Todd Browning's Freaks. If you remember from episode one, Todd Browning also directed Dracula. Uh, This is one of the biggest uh, landmark early horror films, uh, and I'm really excited about it. Mm -hmm. We're also going to be watching uh, Vampire with a Y, uh, which is a European art house vampire movie. Uh, I think it has somewhat lesbian vampires in it, but I don't remember.
3: Well, thank you guys very much uh, for tuning in. If you'd like to watch along with us you should check out uh, from 1932 freaks and vampire and uh, i guess we'll uh we'll see you, see y'all you again next week i'm still a ghost Vaya Dios. bye akandius bye everyone